following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you may have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is Ash Simpson. Uh, I am an MC leader here at Sacred City Church. I actually just got back from, uh, uh, just a few days ago, from uh, a five-day visit back to North Carolina. It was the first time I'd been home for Christmas in five years, so it was... It was awesome. It was a good time to be with my family. I'm thankful for Sam and letting me preach here today. We kind of this is a in between week as he was talking about. So we we're both kind of trying to f- decide what are we gonna what are we gonna preach on. We both kind of came to the same idea almost at the same time. So uh, I'm really hoping that the Lord uses it uh, today. But the last time that I had been home for Christmas was actually back in 2014. So that was uh, back when I was in college and. When I was in college, I was very, very active with uh, a college ministry called Crew. A lot of you might be pretty familiar with it. Uh, One summer of Crew, I got to go to Santa Cruz, California, because I was a freshman in college, and I just wanted to go to the beach, you know, and be on mission, get to work on the boardwalk. It was fun. And then the next uh, summer, I was like, well, what do we do now? We've already done domestic, so we'll go foreign, and ended up going to Sweden because... You know, why go to other parts of the world when you can see Europe, y'all? So it was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But when we got to Sweden, when we got to Sweden on this trip, uh, kind of the first thing they walked us through is that uh, Sweden, the culture of Sweden, what Sweden was all about. Uh, they said, this, Sweden's kind of like where America's probably going to be in 20 to 30 years. They called it a postmodern society. Pretty much what that means is that the people in the church there, they really only went to church on holidays. About 95% of the people that actually went to church, 
they were just going on Christmas and Easter. Uh, and, and the ones that were going to church, and even on a semi-regular basis, were not really living like they'd ever been affected by the gospel at all. I mean, they were just kind of there. They were doing their thing. They were going home and just enjoying the life that they had been given. Um, the, I think the statistic, after talking to some people, they said that about 6% of Swede, uh, Swedes profess to be Christians, and about half a percent to two percent, somewhere in that range, are people who actually go to church every Sunday, who actually try to live life uh, evangelically, is what they call them. So half a percent to two percent are evangelicals. So when we were there, not only were we trying to reach out to people who weren't believers, but we were also going to church. They kind of split us up among a few different churches. And we got the pleasure of going to a Pentecostal church in the downtown area where we were at, and we met uh, three people in particular. So this church was really, it was really cool, the, the kind of the culture and the atmosphere around it. It was very community-oriented. So after church, every Sunday, they have what's called fika, and F-I-K-A. Fika is a time where they get to uh, just sit around, eat some pastries, drink some coffee, and spend time together. I mean, who wouldn't enjoy that. It was, it was really a lot of fun. We met three people immediately uh, at, at this thing. So there was Robin, Robin, and Linus. So boy Robin and girl Robin. And they immediately invited us into their home right after Fika. They made us this big meal, this big Swedish meal. We had stuff we had to do, but we couldn't say no. So we went over to their house and enjoyed this meal that they cooked for us. Uh, but as we kind of got to know Robin and Robin and Linus, uh, we started to understand that they didn't really live life like they'd ever been affected by the gospel. They thought going to church every Sunday was, that was good enough. So on top of the mission that we were there to reach the lost, we were also on mission to these guys trying to hype them up for the gospel and show them how being affected and changed by the gospel should change their lives as well. Then there was two other people that I met. There was Henrik and Daniel, and these were two guys who had no concept of Christianity at all. I mean, they grew up with maybe going when they were six years old to Christmas service, but they didn't even understand the basic tenets of Christianity. And that's pretty much the Swedish postmodern culture in a nutshell of supposedly where we'll be in 20 to 30 years. But that was 2013. You see, sometime in the late 1900s is when postmodernism started to get a name. It's this idea that there's a, the notion that there is no notion, pretty much, that whatever you want to be true can be true to you. I think it's most popularly characterized by Oprah. She had an uh, acceptance speech a few years back, and she said, speak your truth. I can't do Oprah very well, but <laughs> you get the point. Whatever's true to you, that's true. Nobody should question it. Nobody should, should be able to uh, ask you why you believe what you believe. They just say, okay, speak your truth. That's your truth. Yes, queen. But you see, that's a problem because what it starts to do in people is it, it develops skepticism. You get people that are kind of weary of what other people believe. You get people that are very apathetic, just, eh, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's all just relative anyways. And then you get people complacent. Complacency is, is one of the biggest things that happens. You just, well, I'm fine where I'm at, you know. And as I kind of started to think about it, the Swedes are a lot like we are in the Midwest here. They're very, very comfortable with what they have. They're very, very friendly. They'll invite you into their home, but, you know, they're still very private people and very comfortable, and they don't kind of want to be stirred at all. And as we looked at the statistics, this is actually happening right here in our backyard. That was less than seven years ago. That is a far cry from 20 to 30 years, like I was told. You know, the Quad Cities is actually number 15 on Barna's most 
post-Christian cities. So what that post-Christian, post-modern, pretty much the same thing. You're no longer living under Christendom where Christ, you know, the culture is built around Christ. So the Quad Cities is number 15 on that list. And to put that into perspective for you, San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles on that list are all more or less post-Christian than the Quad Cities. So that means that the Quad Cities is further into this post-modernism culture than San Francisco, New York, L.A., all these big cities that we look to as, well, that's where the heathens are. <laughs> you see, this, this has got to come from somewhere. <laughs> it's, it's not coming just from, from all at once. You know, it, it's, it's nations and cities slowly giving over to this idea of apathy and complacency. It's when we just slowly just become apathetic to the very gospel that's changed our lives, the gospel that's revolutionized and changed our identity and redeemed us from where we were headed in the first place. And so really today what we want to talk about is how a church that fails to live all in on its mission is failing to live in the identity of who God has made them to be and a church that will die in their apathetic complacency. So I want to pray for us real quick before we dive right in. Dear God, I just uh, I thank you so much for this church, these, these people that uh, are coming, coming here in between holidays and uh, getting to just delight in you and worship in you, Lord. I pray that this morning you would make yourself huge in our heart, that we could see the gospel and understand what it's done to us, Lord, and that that would change us inside and, and l- let us go forward in this mission that we've been given. I just pray this morning that you would speak uh, through, my, through my words, uh, that, that you would give me the words to say, speak through my mind as well this morning, and, and maybe we walk out of here, people changed for the good of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so to understand identity, if we're living in the identity that we've been given, we have to go back. We have to go way back, like all the way back to Genesis 1. When God created the world, what God was doing was imputing identity into everything that he created. So the trees, the mountains, the seas, the the beauty, the majesty, these are all things that are many amplifiers to declare the glory of the Lord, especially humans. It says in, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see, when God created the heavens and when God created the earth, he was imputing this identity into everything he made. Everything had an identity, it had a purpose, it had a reason to exist. We're going to be spending the majority of our time in 1 Peter, so if you want to flip there with me, I think it'll be on the screen as well. But in 1 Peter, the language that, that surrounds all of this is all identity language. We're going to be looking at verse 9 here. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In all of this language, what Peter is telling us is that who God made you to be and intended you to be from the very start was fully his. Nothing else. We got a little uh, notification going on here. (laughs) He intended you to be his, fully his, chosen, royal, and holy, a holy people for his possession. 
But there's a problem. You see, that problem came very early on in Genesis 3. That came with the fall of humanity. Humans, we started to get disinterested in what God had made us to be. We wanted to do our own thing. We thought that we knew better than what God did. And so we started to live life on our own terms and and fell away from that fellowship and that relationship that we had with God in the garden. And it was an awfully bleak existence. If you read all throughout the Old Testament, nothing ever went worse for the Israelites. Nothing ever goes worse for the people of God. Even nowadays, when we, we try to take something that has a purpose, it has an identity, and we try to use it for something else. It's like, it's like if you call an Uber and a dude rolls up in a Ferrari. I mean, as sweet as that might be, that's not what that Ferrari was intended for. It wasn't intended to be a taxi. It was to be on a racetrack somewhere. Or, um, track with me here, have you ever run out of spoons and you've been too lazy to wash one, so you just grab a knife and you start trying to dig out? I, just me? Okay. It doesn't work. <laughs> I'm telling you, it doesn't really work. See, when we try to live life on our own terms, try to live life as an identity of something that's not been imputed in us from the beginning, we're giving ourselves over to false identities, and we don't really feel very chosen or royal or holy in these things. Identity is kind of a buzzword we use around here a lot, but really it's begging the question, what makes you tick? What gets you heated? What makes you feel like you're a somebody? Is it your job? What you do for a living? I'm a carpenter. That's who I am. Is it your kids? Do you identify as a mom or a dad first and foremost? Who are you? I'm a mom. What about your significant other? I'm a, I'm a husband or a wife. Is it your school? Do you identify as a student? Is it hobbies? I'm a crafter. I'm really good at crafts. I got a new cricket for Christmas. Is it, is it your sports? I'm really into pickleball. Got a good league going. I mean, all of these things are what we would consider false identities because what happens when these things fail to live up to what you've had them in your mind? What happens when work gets hard and your coworkers are annoying? It starts to get boring. You're just tired of it. Do you really feel like you're a carpenter at that point? I don't know. I'm kind of bored. I don't really want to be a carpenter anymore. What about when your kids refuse to live in? Uh, listen, when there's throw up in the baby's chair and the other two are running around with underwear on their heads? Do you really feel like I'm the mom of the world right now? Do you feel excited to be a mom or is it you just get angry and upset because there's no foundation there? Or what about when you start failing at school or your hobbies or at sports? I'm sure you don't want to be a pickleball player when you keep losing game after game. It starts to get frustrating. You see, billions of dollars a year actually go into marketing to trigger these feelings in us, feeling like we belong to something, whether it's our job or our family or our kids. You see, they want you to spend money on these things because these things are so ingrained in us that we would, would want to build our identity around it, so we just throw everything we have at it to, to try to make us feel good. But at the end of the day, deep down, even, even surface level a lot of the times, you're just left feeling like you're not enough. Or you're left feeling like you don't have enough. I've got to have more. I've got to have a swimming pool. And this is why we call these ideas or this false identity. 
Because at the end of the day, when tested and tried, they can't stand up to these expectations that we place on them. You see, true identity, back in Genesis 1, is who God made you to be. And that doesn't fail ever. Because it's not about what you think you are or what you think it should be. This identity is about an eternal, unchanging God and who he says that you are. We're a people that are constantly going to be bent in on ourselves. We're always going to be choosing things, searching for identity that we think is going to satisfy us. I mean, how many times have we said that we're, we're done with something? Hashtag done. I'm over it. I'm done with this job. Forget about it. These people, I'm done with them. Done with these kids. Go to grandma's for the weekend. Get out of here. You see, we do that all the time because God, God knew that this was going to happen. He knew we were going to get fed up and tired of these false identities, and, and he knew that they would never satisfy us. So what God had to do was pull us out of that cycle himself. The Old Testament tells the story over and over and over of the Israelites constantly choosing things that they thought would satisfy them apart from Christ. So God had to write himself into the story to write the ship. Let's go back to verse six. We go to verse six, it says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter in these verses is actually referencing three different Old Testament passages. There's two in Psalms and one in Isaiah. It's really what it is is biblical wordplay because the Holy Spirit, as Peter's writing this letter, surely could have imputed new words, easier, more clear ways to say things than that olden language of the Old Testament. But he didn't. The reference back to the Old Testament actually shows us two things. One, the church fathers adored God's word. They loved it. They wrote it on their hearts. They studied it constantly. And they knew that everything in the Old Testament was pointing to the New Testament. And the New Testament, what happened was pointing to Christ. That's the second thing. It was by no mistake that God sent Jesus to die for our sins. We actually just got done with Advent. Hopefully you're around for that with us. But what we did is we learned about the significance of Jesus' birth on this earth Christ came for a very specific reason, and I want to kind of if you take this journey with me, put it into perspective of what it was like at the time that Jesus was born. You see, the, the Old Testament tells the stories, like I said, thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years of being separated from God. His people weren't really living in fellowship with him. He had been claimed, they had been claimed as his people, but they kept choosing things and having to make animalistic sacrifices over and over just to try to get right with God. It was taxing, it was, it was burdensome. And they had always heard about these promises in the Old Testament that this Savior was going to come. They thought he was going to come on horseback to, to conquer the city and give them a new Jerusalem, but that's not quite what happened. You see, Jesus came almost inconspicuous, except for the giant star in the sky that, that lighted the way of this tiny baby that was born. And this baby came to literally change the world. He lived a life that we could not live till he could restore us back to that thing that we were made for in the first place. 
They were made for so long ago, identity to be with Christ. And this is amazing. After thousands and thousands of years of exile, this should get you hyped because no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, no matter what you're doing right now at this very second, Christ paid for all of it. The check is cleared and the payment was made on a debt that you could never repay. That's what we sang about in the worship songs just a minute ago. It was a debt we could never afford, but our sins were greater and his grace, his mercy was more. We have that mercy that we did not deserve. We have relief. (sighs) Thousands of years of spiritual exile. It's over. Christ has come. The new world is here. And all we have to do is embrace Christ and the work that he's done on our behalf by faith. Verse seven says, so the honor is for you who believe. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The script flipped. Now we're not trying to create this identity on our own. God came into the story and he gave us access back to that identity. Maybe you need to be reminded of it this morning, but there was a time before you knew what that identity was like. At some point in your life, even if it was when you were a little kid, there was a time when you were rambling, trying to make, make it on your own. You were trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong, what makes me feel good, what, who am I? What makes me feel like I'm a somebody? Maybe you're still there this morning, still questioning what makes me a somebody, but the good news of the gospel here is that you don't have to be. That's the gospel. It's our hope. It's our only hope that you are far worse than you've ever dared to imagine, but far more loved than you could ever hope to dream. You see, God knew we would try to create that own hope, that own identity, over and over again out of lesser things, so he sent Christ to literally carry us back to where we belong, to carry us back to the Father, right where we were supposed to be all along in the first place. It's a home where we had no home. It's now an identity where we had nothing to call ourselves. That's a big change. (laughs) You, You think about it, you had nowhere to call your own. You were rambling in the wilderness, but now we have somewhere to call home. It's a complete shift in our identity from a pickleball player to an adopted son or daughter of Christ. So what changes when everything changes? That's the question we're going to explore this morning. Do we keep it to ourselves, try to hide it away, or do we talk about it? We run, we tell everybody about it, we're skipping down the streets, we're so excited. Eh. At least in theory, right? It doesn't always work out that way. The old adage goes, we talk about what we love, and we talk most about what we love most. And since I don't feel like getting my toes stepped on this morning, we're going to skip over the Panthers and football today. I think Sam does a good job of keeping football in our minds. But what about baseball? As, uh, as I've had the pleasure of knowing ever since I moved up here, there are a lot of Cubs fans around here. And yeah, see, people get excited about it. Well, a few years ago, I don't know if you know this, but the Cubs were in the playoffs back in 2016. You you might not have heard about it. Actually, that's all anybody heard about for months was the Cubs are in the playoffs. The Cubs are going to the World Series. I was actually working at News at the time, 
And I covered a lot of stories about retail stores that couldn't keep Cubs stuff on their shelves because everybody's walking around repping their Cubs swag. Uh, read stories about a barber who literally shaved the Cubs logo into the sides of people's head, heads. Why you would ever want to do that, I don't know, but Cubs fans were hype about it. And one story, actually, it really, really did, did, uh, it did touch me. I went into a nursing home. I talked to this old lady who was in her 90s, late 90s, I believe, and she said, I'm so excited. I've been a lifelong Cubs fan. I just wish my husband was here to see it with me. And, oh, as the Lord is my witness this morning, I'm here to tell you that is the only reason I pulled for the Cubs over the Indians that year, was for that little old lady in that nursing home. But let's think about this for just one second. That was the first World Series that the Cubs had been to and won since uh, 1908. They'd been to a couple others, but that was the first one they had won since 1908. So if we do the math since then, that means that in the past, carry the one, 111 years, the Cubs have done one good thing for you, and you still can't stop talking about it. I just had to get that off my chest. <laughs> Guys, if, if we're content with the joy that the Cubs bring us or any other sports team, because I was running my mouth off when the Panthers were in the Super Bowl until they <laughs> blew it. Um, <clears throat> your kids, your hobbies, your schoolwork, if we think that we're satisfied with only these things, we're missing out on a vital part of life, they'll never satisfy you. The Cubs hadn't won a playoff game since, I don't think. I could be wrong. But these things, they're missing out on that vital part of life. They're not bad things. They're, they're fun. The Cubs are fun to watch. But they're never going to satisfy you like Christ is going to satisfy you. The overwhelming love that was poured out on us on the cross that we sang about all morning should cause us to respond with overwhelming excitement. We shouldn't be able to stop talking about it. So is your relationship with Jesus such a way that you can't? That you can't stop talking about it? Or are you just complacent where you're at? My relationship's good. I'm comfy. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we spend more time than we like to admit in that place of apathetic complacency in our relationship with Christ. And when Jesus was on this earth, he had a lot more to say about complacent believers than he ever did about the vehemently unbelieving. We're going to turn to Matthew 25. I'll give you just a second to get there. We're going to be in verse 14. This is a parable. When, when Jesus was on the earth, he told a lot of parables. The disciples didn't often understand what he was talking about at the time, but now that we have the Holy Spirit, we can decipher what he was trying to say. I think the words should be on the screen as well. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had received the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, he also who had received the two talents came forward saying, Master, you deliver me two talents. Here I have made you two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes. (laughs) It's a scary thought. You see, the, the servant with the one talent... The servant with the one talent was given what the master knew he could handle. He said they were each given according to their own ability. But the servant, he was complacent with what he had. He thought what he had was enough. One talent. That's, that's a lot of money back then. So instead of following what the master had asked, the servant thought what he had was enough so he could cruise on through until the master returned. Just sit back, dig it in the ground, live off of the other money. This parable is actually talking about Christ and how he left us to sow and reap for his kingdom and how he's coming back. And there will come a day when he returns and we have to account for what we did for his name and for his glory. That last servant was complacent with what he'd been given. He didn't really see it as a gift. It's not a gift at all. I was owed this. Everybody, the other guy got two. The other guy got five. Surely one talent's not going to make that big of a difference. So I'll just bury it in the ground my gift, I'll do with it what I want. He thought he deserved it, and therefore, there was no need to give above and beyond what he'd been given. I think that the thought of accounting for our actions when the master returns is scary, and I really don't want to get bogged down in the waters of legalism here, because that's exactly what happened with this servant. His chief concern was about pleasing the master with his works, so he focused on the minimum amount of work required to please the master when he got back. But the problem is it's not about what you do. It's not about how much you do. The problem is about the heart that you have behind it. Anyone who's ever read anything from Dave Ramsey or knows anything about financial stuff at all, uh, even a basic investment over a long time, like it says here, should be able to return more than double what you've put into the bank. That's simple economics. But the passage isn't about how much. The master was joyful with the servants who gave him double what he had given back. The joy that that these servants had in serving their master is why they were happy to do it in the first place. It's the reason the master was happy with what they had given back to him. It was the joy that they had in their heart to do so. We should be so satisfied and joyful for the abundance that Christ has given us that we would want to bring others into that same joyful place. It doesn't matter if you help 100 people reconcile to God or just one. 
But what does matter is that you're living out willful obedience to the responsibility that you've been given when the master returns. Our responsibility, well, that's in verse 9. We'll look at the second half. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Marvelous light. We were saved for a reason, guys. What Christ has done to you, he also intends to do through you. What Peter's talking about here is that on top of that identity that we've been given as part of the family, a place to belong, a home, a cornerstone we can lean on, he's saying that we also have a new identity as a missionary as well. We're a people who are advocating for Christ, making the gospel known in word and deed. At least that's what we're supposed to be doing. You were saved to be a marvelous light, as it says in verse 9, a marvelous light in a dark world that doesn't know the joy of Christ. That's what Peter meant by royal priesthood at the beginning of verse 9. Priests in the Old Testament, they had two jobs. The first one was to show God's people what he was like. So they were to be a reflection of what God was like so the people could understand. And then two, they were to help people reconcile with God. So they made the sacrifices. They helped bring them back into the family And guys, we're a royal priesthood. That's the same job that we have now. But how do we do it? How do we live out that identity as a missionary? I mean, most of us, uh, apart from Sam, aren't full-time pastors. We're not full-time priests, but that's just an excuse. Excuse after excuse that we make because what we have are defeater beliefs. That means we're doomed from the start. Things that we believe about ourselves to be true that are holding us back from living out this identity as a missionary that we've been given. Belief, what you believe, matters. Proverbs says that everything we do flows from the heart. So what are some of these beliefs? Think about your own for a minute, but here's a few. I'm not a good enough Christian to do that. I wouldn't know what to say. I don't have any unbelieving friends. Or I just feel too uncomfortable doing that kind of stuff. Join the club. It seems too hard, or I don't have time. Again, I, 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 guys, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about Christ and what Christ has done because it's amazing. You see, he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. The Holy Spirit lives in us now and empowers us to live life radically. So what does that look like? What does it look like to live life radically in the joyous overflow of what Christ has done for us? Number one, is pray. There's nothing, nothing at all that you can do more practical than praying for those that are lost. Your coworkers, gym buddies, your hairdresser, classmates. These are all people around you that need Jesus, people that we should be praying for constantly. We pray that God would break their hearts for him and that he would use us in that mission. Just let us be a part of it. But first, we have to pray that God gives us his eyes and his heart because if we're honest with ourselves, we don't see the world like he does. Oh, it's just another guy at the ice cream shop. If you're not burdened with the weight of what Christ did and the implication that it has on this world, you're not going to talk about it. If you talk about what you love and you talk most about what you love most, but you're not burdened with Christ, you simply won't talk about it. 
That's why we have to pray. God, help us to see what you see. Help me to see my gym buddies like you see them. And help me want to seek out that mission, to care for these lost people that are still trying to make it in the world without an identity. And then, even after all that, if you're still not feeling it, we have to obey, plain and simple. We don't live as the servant who hid away what he'd been given. We obey the call that we've been given by God. We do it, regardless of how we feel about it. Number two, live in such a way that you should be expected to be asked why you are the way you are. Let's go back to verse one through five. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter's telling us is that even... Even if people question your motives, even if they make up lies about you as evildoers and what you're doing is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, ultimately, they're going to see God through what you're doing because what you're doing is trying to glorify Him and be a reflection of what He's called you to be. If you're living as Christ has called you to, it will beg the question, why? Why? See, here are some things that, that we're called to be doing. First of all, radical generosity. I know it gets uncomfortable when we talk about money, but what do your resources look like? Where does your time, where does your money go on a regular basis? Who are you giving it to? Are you giving money when it hurts to give or giving time when you don't have any? Peter says here, offer up spiritual sacrifices. This is what he means. What does your dinner table look like? Who are you inviting around the dinner table to enjoy a meal with you? Quality time. People to get to know them. Who have you blessed recently? Are you actively looking out for ways to give away money and resources? Or are you just trying to hide it away? What does it mean in your life to offer up spiritual sacrifices? To let go of these things that you think are going to give you identity? Guys, money is not your own to begin with. God gave it to you to hold on to for a short time, just like the master gave the servants. And your money is the ammunition that can blow holes in the gates of hell. It was literally given to you so you can use it as a tool in order to free others from their misunderstanding of what God is like and free them from the domain of darkness. It is a powerful thing. That's why the Bible talks so much about what we do with our money it's an ammunition against Satan himself. But what about other things that you've been given? Your time, your skills. Have you blessed your neighbors or your unbelieving friends with the skills you've been given? Look, I'm not, I know we've got a lot of tradesmen here and very, very skilled people that can do amazing things with their hands. I'm not one of them. I am not skilled in the least bit. But as someone who owns a truck, I can tell you people need help because they ask me all the time. <laughs> Hey, buddy, you gonna come move something? They need help. 
So what are you doing when they ask you for help? Or are you asking your neighbor for help? Get to know them. Say, hey, can you come help me with this project? Building that quality time and getting to know what they're like. Is your life structured in a way where you can meet and know unbelievers? If you tell me you don't have any unbelieving friends, what you're saying is that the pattern of your life is set up in such a way that you're not able to live out the mission that God has called you to. Where do you work out? Where do you spend your time, your free time? What coffee shop are you a regular at? Do you know anybody there? Do you know the barista's name behind the counter? If you can't answer any of those questions, you need to ask yourself how you can change the pattern of your life so that you can come across these people that don't know the gospel. What in my life needs to take a radical shift, just like the radical shift from not part of the family to part of the family that you are now? How does your life need to reflect that? See, your life should be set up in a way where you'll be questioned time and time again why you give and live so radically. Why are you different than everybody else? And the answer to that question is Christ and what Christ has done for you. He's done good on your behalf and he left you changed. So tell him about it. Number three, always use words. I heard a lot growing up uh, a phrase, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. It's cute, but I'm here to tell you it is borderline blasphemous. It's ridiculous. You cannot share the gospel without using words. Words are always, always, always necessary. Otherwise, they wouldn't know you from the next do-gooder down the road. You can go into any community you want and you can find people who do good stuff. But often that motivation is to make themselves feel better. Look at Ellen DeGeneres. That woman gives away money like it's candy. She gives away cars, trips, you name it. But she does it for the feels. And for TV ratings, of course, too. Listen to this. You can just as easily lead someone away from Christ through your good works because you never talked about why you are the way you are. Thinking you're just like everybody else. There's good people in this world. Why do I need Jesus? We shouldn't be afraid to say why we do what we do because the reason is incredible. And if you're afraid that you're a bad communicator, that you're just gonna jobble it all up, then spend time pouring yourself into God's word. He's given you everything you need here to write on your heart and to know exactly what to say. It's all here in the scripture. Learn to communicate your story. That's why we share stories all the time here at Sacred City. Learn to share why the gospel was good news to you and then say, do I know why the gospel is good news to me so that I can tell others why the gospel is good news in their life as well? It's good news to everybody. Plain and simple. Somebody says it's not, they're lying. We all need the gospel. It's just a matter of being willing to step out and share it with others around you. And it never stops being good news. That's the good news in the good news, is that it constantly is changing us and reforming us. Now, as you win people over to Christ, you get the opportunity to disciple them and to speak truth into their life. That's what we do here at Sacred City Church on a weekly basis is missional communities. That's why it's called missional communities. Because we're not just a group of people who need each other and need to be needed. We're a group of people that are called for a very specific purpose. It's not a country club. It's a mission. 
And we get to pour into the life of new believers that we bring in and train them to live their life just like it says in 1 Peter 2 as well. And the cycle continues, and the cycle continues, and it continues. The church is still God's plan A for the gospel, and it always will be. He still intends to use you to reach the quad cities and beyond, to knock us down the peg of the most post-Christian cities. It's a new decade here in a few days. 2020 is upon us. But God's spirit is still the same. It's living in us, just like it was with Peter in the early church. And you might be thinking, oh, well, it's, it's different now. It's harder now. For my great-grandparents, it was easy for them to talk about Jesus. Guys, all throughout history, there's been really hard times for Christians. And it's an immediate time we're in, and I'm not going to downplay the difficulty of to talk about it in today's world. But it's not exceptional. It's not exceptional. It's, it's an immediate need but not an exceptional one. And the mission is still the same. You're to tell the world with words what God is like and who he is and live in such a way that demands that explanation. As we come to the the Lord's Supper here in a minute, this is where we get to remember that very thing. We get to remember the goodness of Jesus. We get to remember what he's like and all the goodness that he's done in our life to help us change what our identity is. We come, we remind ourselves about the sacrifice that he made and how his perfect atonement allows us to be a part of this community and that now we get the privilege of going out into the world, going into 2020 and telling everybody about it. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for just the delight to get to study your word, to get to know your word and and God, we, we just uh, repent as, as people who fail to live out your mission on a daily basis, people who would rather live for our own means, for our own purposes, people who uh, would rather just find identity in, in everything else, Lord, and then fail to talk about why we are the way that we are. Lord, I pray for this new year, and as we go throughout it, Lord, this new decade, may it be a decade of complete change and revolution in the life of Sacred City Church. May we glorify you and you alone in all that we do and we see lives changed and won for the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.